You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Lee Grubbs, who's the director of the Mad Scientist Program with the United States Army Training and Doctrine Command. Part of this, he spent 28 years as a military intelligence officer with the United States Army. His military assignments included duties as the commander, 1st Brigade Special Troops Battalion, the 10th Mountain Division, the division chief of the Army G2 responsible for quick reaction capabilities for Iraq and Afghanistan, the 10th Mountain Division's Deputy G2, Chief Analysis and Control Element, G2 Planner, and 2nd Brigade Sport Troops Battalion Executive Officer. He served in multiple intelligence assignments, starting with the service on the staff of the United States Army Europe, Chief V Corps Military Intelligence Sport Element, Commander Headquarters and Headquarters Company, 66th Military Intelligence Group, and Director Imagery Support of the National Ground Intelligence Center. So welcome, Lee, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today on SpyCast. Thank you, Vince, and uh, thank you for having me here. I love the Spy Museum. All of my children have been to the museum, and it's just a great honor to be here with you today. Well, we appreciate that. And, and, and whenever we have a career intelligence officer, uh, we want to try to get in a little bit to what got you in this business in the first place. So what what brought you to the intelligence world? Was it Army first and then Intel, where you think, I'm going to be an Army officer and then kind of worked your way into intelligence? Or did you decide to use the Army to facilitate an intelligence career? For me, it was Army first. Uh, I started off the Army as a military police officer. And after several years, I, I, I deeply fell in love with the Army, the service, the camaraderieship, the the great challenges the army the army offered and but as i looked around and i decided that i might be interested in doing this for a career i also was a lover of history i was a continual reader and in history every time it came down to many cases what leaders knew and what they did not do and it affected their decisions and this is really the centerpiece of intelligence mm-hmm. and with that interest i decided to switch uh to be a military intelligence officer and spent the rest of my career as a military intelligence officer. And now you have a very unique job. So I want to ask you, 
how has your career in intelligence prepared you for the job that you have now? Let me kind of qualify this question a little bit. And this might not be the either or answer, but I, I'm wondering, was your time as a staff officer or even a field grade officer, was either of those more important or, you know, in your current job, are tactical questions more important? Important operational questions, strategic questions, or again, the answer might be yes to everything. Well, so I, I lead a program called the Mad Scientist Initiative for Training and Doctrine Command, and the initiative's intent is to improve the future readiness of the Army. It's a future-oriented program. Uh, it has two parts. Um, the first part is really on exploring the future through a collaborative process with world-class academic institutions, industry, other parts of government, including the intelligence community. And then secondly, uh, to build out a really a community of action. These are uh, world-class thinkers on broad sets of technologies and to bring that thinking to the Army as we focus on the future. You asked how my past prepared me for this. First of all, I'd say that being an intelligence officer, you learn a very important skill, and that is how to ask critical questions. You have to be a critical thinker, and you also learn to anticipate and imagine. These are key skills for futuring as well, uh, as you have to almost take a step beyond what you know to think what the possibilities are to further explore. Well, let's break down the Mad Science Initiative a little bit more because you, you explain it to a degree, but the nuts and bolts of it, like what is it? What does it do? So uh, to do this, we use several tools. Uh, The first one, which is probably the most well-known, is we run uh, conferences several a year, uh, and we run those at world-class academic institutions. The one one we just completed in Silicon Valley at SRI International. Uh, SRI International is a world-class research facility. They invented the mouse that's on your computer. They sent the first email they uh, per, they invented the first robot. I mean, a world-class mm-hmm. location. And uh, so we, we picked those spots, and we bring in world-class talent around a topic that's future-oriented. In that, this case, it was bio and biotechnologies and what was going to be able to be possible in the future with physical and cognitive enhancement of soldiers. And then on the threat side, what was going to be possible uh, with threat actors. So those, these conferences, and that's an example of the most recent one. But we've done conferences at Georgetown, Georgia Tech, Arizona State University with Urban Challenges and, uh, and many more. Uh, secondly, we run a, a blog, uh, which uh, we publish twice a week, which I would invite anybody to go to and subscribe. It's uh, madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. And on top of that, we invite guest bloggers because it's a crowdsourcing platform. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to that in the blurb. I'll for say, this it's, it's, it's a quick read twice a week. It's a great opportunity to get future-oriented uh, on what's going on. We run an online series. We bring world-class thinkers, we, and th- these are open to anyone. These, this part of our program is completely unclassified. It's for that purpose to break down the barriers. We're seeking and listening for new ideas and knowledge about the future which might not be resident in the mm. Army or DOD. Let me, let me mention the blog before you move on too far forward because when I prepare for these, these conversations, I want to do as much research as I can. So, of course, I went to the blog and I'm like, you know, I'll check out the blog for half an hour or so, get some ideas. And then I realize I, I basically just clear my slate for the rest of the day because I'm like, damn it, I'm going to be reading this damn thing for hours because it's just like, it's so fascinating. And we'll kind of talk about some of the stuff that's on there, things from like the last conference and other things like that too. But 
if you're nerdy like me and likely as you are because you're listening to this, give yourself some time to go through this blog because you're going to get sucked in and, and not want to do anything else. So sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but I would say don't let that uh, don't let that deter you from going there no, no. because the individual uh, blog posts themselves should take several minutes, but right. each one of them takes you to additional content, podcasts, yes. videos, other articles that have been written, and that's the purpose of it. Uh, as we work as a platform to to educate other people in the Army, but like I said, we're really seeking people who have other ideas and want to submit ideas and share them with this community that's future-oriented. Let me ask you, what have you done to this point? I mean, have you started to see these events translate into policy changes or at least conversations about policy changes? Well, uh, so the Army's go- starting a, a transformation itself to stand up a futures command, which is going to focus on modernization. I'd like to say that a lot of the work that you see is the senior leaders of developing that, a lot of the terminology they're using, a lot of that comes out of two and a half years of what we've been doing with Mad Scientist. So I'd like to believe that uh, we, had, we had a part in some of the early thinking about uh, how the Army needed to focus on the future around uh, general, some of General Milley's, our chief of staff of the Army's key modernization priorities. Uh, so I think that's, that's a key aspect. I'd also say that uh, the future is coming much faster than many of us would like to believe. So we write uh, on, on different aspects of what we see, and then, and then it seems like a month later we'll right. read something in the news that we think is clearly a weak signal about something we were writing about that we thought we weren't going to see for eight, nine years down the road. So uh, I think we do see both of those things. Something like this seems necessary to me because in the last now 17 plus years of, of war, uh, we've been kind of making stuff up as we went along where there's a problem, t- usually a tactical problem on the ground that we create a new technology to try to fix, whether it's everything as simple as an MRAP to you know more modern body armor, even uniforms. I think back to the, the late 1970s when the Army kind of had a come to Jesus moment after Vietnam. They kind of put their best thinkers on it. They come up with things like the Big Five. Right, I'm an ex-tanker. I know a little of the history of kind of how that program came together. And that was a chance for a reevaluation of the whole. Is that what we're seeing here? Kind of where we're stepping back and saying, okay, we can't keep doing this piecemeal. We've got to kind of take a big look at the way wars are going to be fought in the future. Right. So I think it would be fair to say that uh, between 2005 and 2015, the Army was uh, very focused on winning two wars that were ongoing in Iraq and mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Uh, I was a part of Afghanistan. I spent three years there. So, uh, And in warfare like this, it's a continual adaptation. You're adapting, your adversary's adapting, and you're trying to adapting, adapt quicker. And in that, there's tools that are brought to the force which give to, uh, provide an advantage. And many times the adversary will quickly uh, work through an, an advantage based on what you brought to the battlefield. So this is something we've seen. I believe that what we're facing now, as the Army has uh, come, is still very involved in both of these uh, conflicts, uh, but is also looking at this idea of multi-domain battle, which is being talked about uh, on the news. And that's really the belief that we're going to have to fight across what we call uh, the, the, the five domains and um, air, land, sea, cyber, and space. And, uh, and that our adversaries which is this is a little bit new, that our adversaries will be able to compete in each of these domains and just not near-peer competitors, but that we will see non-state actors and even super-empowered individuals that are capable 
uh, of competing against us in some of the domains that we would have thought would have been not possible Mm -hmm. a decade ago. So with this multi-domain battle, and I think we are seeing a wholesale look at the Army around something that could be analogous to the big five. It's more than five. There's six. uh, The uh, chief of staff of the Army is focused on six large priorities. Uh, but uh, with, and he's developed cross-functional teams, which really brings together uh, some of the best thinkers on science, uh, some of the best, uh, best military leaders we have, as well as the intelligence community around these these six priorities uh, to kind of shape uh, shape what the army is going to look like uh, in the future. A lot of this, I mean, the key to this is forecasting, right? You're sort of thinking ahead 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Is it key to have good intelligence today about the capabilities of the countries that you're, you know, trying to look 30 years ahead? I mean, how can you know what they're going to look like in 30 years if you don't understand where they are today? So you you definitely have to understand the start point. But I think the first thing to know about the future is there are no facts about the future. So uh, so you're you're not going to get the future right so what's the standard for futuring? You know, our standard is that we need to get this more right than a potential adversary. Mm-hmm. That's that's the mad scientist. That's the training in Dr. Grant. The Army standard is how do we get this more right than a potential adversary so that we have the advantage if it comes to conflict and we have the ability to deter future conflict. So it's about getting more right. I'd say the second thing about it is about this process is it is about anticipation, imagination. So if you went back and you looked at the 9-11 commission, there are about four big findings there. But the number one, the number one finding in the 9-11 commission was the nation lacked the ability to imagine Mm -hmm. that an attack like that could happen. And one of the things we do is is we're uh, in the Mad Scientist Initiative is we're focused on trying to ensure that doesn't happen. Now, there are a lot of other parts of the intelligence community who are doing exactly that work uh, as well, is basically allowing alternative analysis mm-hmm. and things like this uh, from an analytical approach. We do it a little bit different, uh, but the real focus is, is how do we help ourselves anticipate and imagine the possibilities to get it more right than future adversaries? Are, are you and your scientists cognizant of the possibility of mirror imaging where you're assuming other countries are going to develop the same way we are and, and talk, really keying into this failure of imagination, are you kind of thinking outside of what we can think we can do to say maybe someone's going to do it a little differently and we have to be worried about them finding an easier way or a different way or something that we're not prepared for? Uh, so there are uh, a few critical thinking errors that we always try to keep in mind. Uh, you mentioned mirror imaging. It's an absolute uh, problem set. You see it even when you're thinking about it, you'll find yourself doing it. So it's a continual challenge. Our adversaries do emulate us mm-hmm. in many cases. Uh, but we also know that in, in the case of an emerging technology, our adversary might uh, invest in that technology. They might use it differently. They might be willing to do things we would not do. So we, we have to understand that. Uh, we have to approach that and try to be cognizant of mirror imaging. I'd also say that another big one, is confirmation bias, Mm -hmm. is that you have a vision of the future. So every time you see something small out there, all that confirms our hypothesis about the future. And you have to really be critical of that. You know, yes, it might confirm a part, but you ought to ask yourself, does it really? And look at all aspects of that. So 
I would say the two that we really work on is preventing confirmation bias and mirror imaging. Uh, but this is these are cons- constant uh, failures for any critical thinker, even in professional, you know, people who do this professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say that was a big one. But I think it gets to, you know, we have a, a community here that some of the, some of the individuals listening might want to be intelligence uh, personnel officers, work for one of the agencies mm-hmm. in the future. And I think this is the, what a point you bring up is very important. What what should they do to be preparing themselves for these careers? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, I have this idea of there are three literacies that the intelligence professional of the future needs to have. The first one is a cultural literacy. And that gets to the cultural literacy might inoculate you from some mirror imaging. Uh, so a cultural literacy. That might uh, be speaking a language. Uh, language is a big part of culture, but maybe not. Um, also, a, a literacy in history. Because while um, uh, historical analogy is interesting, it's an important way to look at things. Also, it can be a form of confirmation bias mm-hmm. as well. So you have to ask yourself, how is this like the past and how potentially is this not like the past? But you have to have a literacy in history to be able to do that effectively. And then last, which is, a, I think, a new one, uh, is this an idea of literacy in science. Because in, when I grew up, uh, you, you, if you majored in biology or chemistry or you're an engineer or, or, or in some kind of science discipline, that's what you did. But mostly, if you were a liberal artist... You, you would have focused on cultural mm-hmm. aspects in history, uh, but that's not going to cut it in the future. It's just there's things are going happening too quick. You have to have a literacy in technology and science. It doesn't mean that you're a scientist. Right. It doesn't mean you can you can stay at a uh, a hotel six tonight. It just uh, a motel six tonight. It just means that you need to be able to understand enough to put that into how you're thinking about whatever problem you're thinking about. Is there is there interagency cooperation with Tradoc and Mad Scientists with DARPA or IARPA or these agencies that are are thinking cutting edge, especially in the defense side? Oh, absolutely. So, at we we do we do run. First of all, we run the unclassified conferences, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we have we've had members from IARPA, DARPA, from all of the intelligence community, uh, all all the different agencies at those uh, conferences uh, presenting, as well as. Uh, there to meet individuals and uh, and uh, connect and do that, uh, but then also annually we do run a, a classified conference, uh, which is done uh, with the intelligence agency. It's almost uh, a peer review that we're trying to think about what we're hearing in in the world uh, from an unclass perspective, and then make sure we have a full vis- version or vision of of what's being thought uh, from all the different agencies. So uh, they are really. Uh, Great partners. That includes also the National Intelligence Council, who who does a world class about every four years look at the future at the unclassified level, uh, as well. I'm wondering how much of a risk is there of focusing on the army specifically, or or even going beyond that, looking at the military or even the intelligence community, because so much of what it sounds like future war is going to look like is going to be all encompassing. Thinking back to World War II, where it's a full mobilization of America, not just the military, where you have economic mobilization and the people are mobilized and science and technology and all these things come together to fight a war. We haven't been dealing with that all that much lately, right? A small percentage of America is doing the war fighting today. But in the future, especially against a great power, how much do we have to take into account that big picture? And are you guys doing that when you're doing what you're doing? So um, 
first of all, I do believe it's absolutely a whole government approach uh, to the opportunities and challenges that the future will offer. Uh, so what we try to do is focus on the defense security implications and specifically what that means for the Army because we talked about I'm part of Training and Doctrine mm-hmm. Command. Well, what Training and Doctrine Command uh, does is, first of all, it uh, trains the entire Army. Uh, you know, it acquires the entire Army. I mean, I don't know if you know, the Training and Doctrine Command brings in 80, 83,000 soldiers a year. Mm-hmm. This is larger than most countries' armies, and we bring that in in a year to turn the civilian into the soldier. So. Right. So it's a it's a big mission. So that's our major that is our major focus. But I will tell you that aspects of what you're talking about are exactly exactly accurate. And I'll I'll get, just give one example that we run across oftentimes is that in the past uh, most of the technologies that we are are used to really came from Department of Defense funding, the internet, the you know the ability. To send email over the internet, the uh, the Siri on your iPhone was developed at SRI International with money from Department of Defense, <laughs> and was basically at some point in time that was spun out. You know, Apple buys a company, and that's how you get Siri on your iPhone. That is how a lot of technology happened. It came out of the DoD, it came out of NASA, it entered the commercial space. That dynamic has completely changed. Flipped almost. Flipped. Right. Yeah. Flipped, absolutely flipped. I mean, um, the development of microcomputing, advanced gaming, artificial intelligence, all of these pieces, that that development of those technologies are happening in the commercial space. So what, so what is that? And that commercial space, oh, by the way, is completely open to anyone. Right. And we call that democratized technology. Well, you think of every, you know, all the videos of Boston Dynamics and the kind of robotics right. that they're creating. I mean, yes. every couple of weeks or so, there's a robot doing something else and amazing. You're, and you're creeped out. Right. And you're watching it on Twitter or YouTube. And you're like, yes. well, everyone's seeing this. But that's the kind of war fighting in the future. That's right. So, so what does that mean to the Department of Defense and Army? It means that we have to f- determine... First of all, what of that technology has military implications? What do we need to uh, figure out how to backward integrate into our future forces to make sure that we're modernizing at a pace that allows us to deter future conflict? And if we're required to fight and win for our nation, that we're able to do that. Uh, so uh, you know, th- that's a key aspect that is a lot different. And that requires a whole-of-government approach. I mean the idea of instruments of national power – is as important as anything today. So uh, our nation's power is built on its, you know, its economic, its science and technology. I mean, these, we, you know, we have we're lucky as Americans. We have the opportunity to live in a country that's that's led in many aspects of this. But uh, in the, we see a future where that's going to be competitive as well. I mean, is that? I mean, this might be a wonky question and maybe even an unanswerable question, and maybe something for a political science class. But does that give the United States a distinct advantage of having? kind of this privatization and the strong tech companies we have? Or does a command economy have benefits that might at one point overtake us? I mean, if we we have these companies that are developing these potentially great military tools of the future, but they're also doing stuff that will never make a transition into military defense. You have countries like the North Koreas of the world, like Iran, even China, even though it has a, a robust quote-unquote private economy, there is – Command economics coming from on high. 
or is it a mixture of both? Maybe this is a conversation more appropriate for a political science class. Um, but do you see that as a – it's been an advantage going back 100 years now. But do you see that as continuing to be so? Or do we have to find a way to even tighten the public-private partnership in the United States? Well, so one of the things about the, the future and really an advantage uh, in America is, is our human capital. So one of the opportunities with mad scientists that I that I have is when we have these conferences or we do crowdsourcing events, we have people write for our blog, is I have the ability to interact with just phenomenal thinkers across every aspect of emerging technologies. And uh, we have world-class uh, people thinking on this who are very interested in, in many cases, uh, the security of our nation mm-hmm. and – and uh, helping the uh, Department of Defense. Uh, so, so I would say that's always an advantage. And I would say that because these technologies developed in the commercial space, uh, that it, it just isn't potentially the near-peer competitor that you mentioned in China, who is, uh, has incredible investments ongoing in quantum, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. biotechnologies uh, that, are gonna, that are today and will rival what we've been able to do at our innovation set, innovation uh, centers that we have in this country. Uh, but those technologies will be widely available also to others. I mean, uh, non-state actors will have uh, basic capabilities uh, that in 10 years ago we thought were not really possible unless a near-peer competitor had it. A weak signal of that we saw with is, uh, is ISIS that, that was flying uh, quadcopters and arming them. And uh, this was done many times in Syria. I mean, this isn't, you, you can pick up your uh, popular science or popular mm-hmm. mechanics magazine. Um, one of the things we've called this is an idea of prototype warfare. And you've seen this where uh, you've seen engineers in the Ukraine, engineers in Syria, engineers in Iraq uh, basically develop uh, small robots, arm them, uh, attempt to use them uh, in conflict. Uh, they've used uh, commercial quadcopters. That isn't just about this conflict. What we're seeing are weak signals to the future where they have looked in the commercial space. They have determined there was a technology that would give them a temporary advantage, and they've quickly taken and integrated it and attempt to use it uh, in combat. So that is, the, that is really the future. And the advantage that we have is really human capital. Right. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. 
www.thinkdigital.com. The automatic reaction to a lot of these conversations is, well, it's science fiction, right? It sounds like it's 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 part of pop culture. And I'm wondering, it, it, can pop culture be a predictor or a catalyst of change or both? There's a lot of, you know, people look at one of the blog posts yes. was looking back at some of the, the pop culture tech, you know, visions of the future from decades past. And it's always kind of this chicken egg question about they created something from Star Trek or from Dick Tracy or whatever. And it was like, oh, it predicting the future. Well, you could look at it another way and saying a lot of the scientists who were developing this stuff were watching that pop culture back in the day. And it kind of sparked an idea. And now it's there because of the pop culture. Is it a yin-yang argument, a chicken-egg argument? I mean, our, our, I think reading a lot of these blog posts, there's a, a Netflix series called Altered Carbon. which yes. uh, And there's one thing we'll talk about in a couple of minutes about this idea of kind of implantables and taking your consciousness and moving from body to body. It doesn't sound it, – It's the series is set hundreds of years in the future, but it doesn't seem like it's going to take us all that long to get to that point. So where – I bet everyone loves pop culture, especially science pop culture, sci-fi. Is that is kind of is that the the environment that you work in? Uh, so, you know, we're, we don't believe in breaking the laws of physics, but I will tell you that, and it could we don't chicken the egg, and that's a great blog post, by the way, written yeah. by an engineer from our, our research and development command. Uh, so, so I'd recommend everybody go uh, take a look at the blog, blog post you're talking about. So we every one of our uh, conferences we uh, we bring in a a science fiction author. Uh, they usually have a they're usually great at imagination. Our, our conference in Silicon Valley we brought in Dr. David Brin, and before you know who is a Caltech astrophysicist. He's a real scientist mm-hmm. who writes science fiction. And if you're interested in he- looking at his presentation, all of our all these videos are on our YouTube channel, Tradoc G2 OEE YouTube, and you can go look at the playlist. You can see Dr. Brand talk about uh, the future, and uh, and he also um, does a lot of advising to uh, DARPA and the CIA and other intelligence agencies. He talks about that in, in his presentation. So I'd recommend. We also have brought in uh, Pete Singer and August Cole, who wrote the great book Ghost yeah. Fleet. Who every day I see August Cole tweet out a comment about here's the Ghost Fleet uh, item of the day yep. where he where there's something has happened in the real world that they actually wrote about several years ago. So we bring them in. I, I got a quick story to tell, mm-hmm. and there was an there was an article in Harvard Business Review a while back, and it was basically why. Um, Business leaders need to read science fiction, and it opens up with a story, uh, a historical uh, point, that in 1898, there was this huge problem in New York City, and it was there was tons of horse manure. And so they brought the greatest minds together to think about this problem, and they really couldn't solve it. But more importantly, these greatest minds they brought from all over could not envision that in 15 years, we would start to have complete mechanization of our society. The problem would not be horses and manure. It would be cars and pollution and the the road infrastructure required to support the number of cars and what that would mean as far as urban people moving to suburbia Mm -hmm. and and the hollowing out of our cities. And these would be the urban problems of the the future, uh, not horse manure. So why could the scientists not envision that? This is what science fiction offers us. They're not able to predict the future. 
but they're able to kind of describe it. Right. Dr. Bren said uh, in one of his things, he said it's his, not his job to predict the automobile, but it's his job to describe the the um, uh, the the traffic jam. Right. And so that's what we're looking for with science fiction. Yeah, I mean, I think H.G. Wells around the same time period was writing stories about nuclear weapons and atomic bombs when the science hadn't been even thought of yet. Right. At that point. Um, we we have done a science fiction uh, contest. We had about 152 submissions from all over the world. And uh, if you go to Small Wars Journal, there's a Mad Science tab, and you can read many of the top stories that were turned into us. And some of them are great stories about all aspects of conflict in the future. If you like science fiction and you like military uh, topics, I'd say go to Small Wars Journal and check out the Mad Scientist. Uh, submissions we had that were science fiction. We did that last year. Let me let me ask you about some some trends, innovations, threats that you guys have been bringing up. And, and one of them that jumped out to me that I hadn't thought about a lot was a demographic threat, uh, the, the advent of megacities, and even combining this with climate change, looking at new environments uh, or entirely new theaters of warfare that we haven't been dealing with. And you know, climate change may bring with it the opening of the Arctic. And these are. These are concerns that go beyond the military, again, kind of bringing back that theme of multi-agency and sometimes even, you know, multinational concerns where you need to figure out ways, you not you, the royal you, figure out ways of not only working with militaries, but non-governmental agencies, with commercial capabilities, with intergovernmental, all these things. And then think about in the United States where you've got to deal with something like posse comitatus where the military can only be brought into certain circumstances and very special circumstances. So I thought, again, go read it, look at the stuff on the blog. But I thought it was interesting that you're not just looking at new technologies that might come in the future. You're not just looking at some whiz-bang cyber or some AI stuff. It's, it's kind of growth of cities. It's stuff that you think would not be considered high-tech, but it's just as important. Right. Well, you know, we look at the entire operational environment. So that doesn't just mean technology. So, I mean, there are, all, there are lots of aspects. You're talking about um, uh, dense urban areas and megacities. I think the post on the 29th of March, we did one on, um, on megacities. We actually, one of our, in, in training and doctrine command, uh, G2, one of our, uh, one of my sister organizations is running a megacity conference uh, just next week in New York City. I bring that up. Uh, because we're doing it there because we're going to have the uh, police commissioner there. We're going to have the, uh, the fire department uh, chief there or senior leader from the fire department. Uh, so we're, we're learning about the experiences of operating in these type of uh, environments from the local leadership, the gov- uh, leadership that does that. We're also bringing in uh, international participation from Mexico and Australia and some things they've dealt with with natural disasters, large natural disasters in urban areas. Uh, so we do think more than technology, and we do always seek out uh, people outside of the Department of Defense to learn from what they're learning. Uh, so the, once again, it's imperative then on us to determine, okay, how does that relate to the, the application of military force, the United States Army, multi-domain battle. Right. And then what does that mean about how we build our army, train our army, equip our army? You know, the, what, are, what are the imperatives there? And this might not be something 30 years down the road. I mean, Seoul, South Korea is basically a mega city. And so, God forbid, if a war with North Korea breaks out, all of these lessons have to be learned very, very quickly 
because, you know, if Seoul is hit with even conventional artillery, you're dealing with things just beyond how to fight a war. It's how to deal with casualties, civilian casualties, fire, you know, disease spread, all the things that we, again, haven't had to deal with for decades might not be 30, 40, 50 years down the road, but, you know, God forbid, could be a couple Right. I think what we said, what we believe is that uh, as the world becomes more urban, and you'll see different numbers, but by 2050, 60 percent of the uh, uh, population in the world lives in urban areas. A huge percentage of that is in the littoral areas, the urban littoral areas, and uh, so that that has certain implications. And you can look at all types of things. You can look at an Ebola crisis that took place uh, and what that meant in areas where it was. An urban environment and how that you know what it meant to bring in medical care to those circumstances. You can look at a lot of different uh, aspects of what's going on in these urban areas, and then imagine and anticipate what that looks like if there was happens to be conflict mm-hmm. in those areas. But you know, we believe that uh, our adversaries will seek these environments out because it brings them the advantage of being able to. Uh, hide from a sophisticated intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance network. It, uh, it potentially provides them more people that would provide logistical support. Uh, the constricted terrain in dense areas and megacities would potentially impact our ability to communicate, our ability to shoot, our ability to maneuver. And then on top of that, we, you know, the, the United States Army, uh, we do everything we can to prevent non-combatant death. I mean, that's that's just you know that's what America expects. Its army to do, mm-hmm. so we, you know, so all those aspects actually encourage adversaries to try to seek these these locations out to allow them to right. more freely operate. You've already mentioned the the conference you just had in California on the in the beginning of March, but I want to kind of dig in a little bit the bioconvergence and soldier twenty fifty fifty conference because talk about science fiction. I mean, some of this stuff is you know human machine interface. We're talking about. Everything from exoskeletons to augmentation and VR and implantables. Um, one thing I found interesting, and I think people will start will understand this pretty readily, is this idea of personalized warfare, and even within that, information warfare about the ability. I mean, you just have to read the news to understand the emergence of the ability to personalize information warfare to a certain segment of the population, and it's something we seem behind on, but obviously something we're paying attention to also. So uh, personalized warfare is the idea, idea that there's going to be ways uh, to target individuals or uh, individual groups. And really there are two aspects we've been exploring. One of them is the, the use of information. And, uh, and because there's so much out there as far as digital information that you, I can understand a, a lot about how an individual might think or who individuals are. Uh, that I can target them. Interesting enough, I was watching uh, the show Ocu- Occupied mm-hmm. the other day, and there was a uh, a family that was targeted with a with a basically a small video game that showed the family being murdered by a terrorist group, and it was actually sent to the kids and to and to this reporter's spouse. It's a it was a form of personalized warfare. It was very directed. It had a very uh, specific intent. Uh, the explosion in biology and the understanding of the human genome just mm-hmm. takes that to a complete different. Uh, level as far as what's you know what that means, and uh, one of the things that we have said is is that the same way today that I protect my personal identity in the digital world, that there's going to have to be a way for me to figure out a way to protect my genomic identity 
to uh, prevent uh, me from being targeted in a, 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 some kind of biolog- biological way. Right, because you can think of modern biological weapons being specifically engineered to just kill one person. And then you could walk into the middle of a city and let off this weapon and no one would know except for the one guy who drops dead right. of whatever whatever you've created. Or you could – you know, people have talked about in the past of genetically engineering biological weapons to target ethnic groups or you know specific things where – you could have soldiers in a environment that had been completely contaminated with the bioweapon, but if they're not of that particular ethnic group, they're they're immune. Whereas their enemy would be affected pretty right. considerably. So to flip the to flip the threat uh, over, it actually potentially offers great opportunity uh, in at that presentation and uh, and uh, his video his his online um, present his presentations online. Uh, Ketner Griswold, a young man who works at Harvard who's mentored by uh, George Church, who's one of the leading genomic uh, thinkers in the world, uh, gave a great presentation on the idea of building uh, bio-warfare resiliency uh, through this idea of potentially expressing uh, genes or things like this. So there might be ways um, to understand this and actually uh, make it where we're we're less immune, we're more immune to... uh, to these type uh, future capabilities, so it's going to be. Uh, that's why you know, as a nation, we're not as a nation. You know, America is not going to be building bio weapons to target right. individuals, but we should be very interested in this because there might be great defensive capabilities here, uh, even beyond the ability to cure current diseases right. uh, that that many of us that have family members and everybody else that have, have dealt with. So there's great opportunity in the science. Uh, it isn't always scary. Yeah. Well, it's the double-edged, it's, you know, the, the dual use of all science where, where, where right. it, it's not the science itself that's good or bad. It's, it's how you use it. But, I, but I'd say that uh, you talked about, you know, really what the conference was about uh, was understanding, that what, you know, what are the threat aspects of that? But it was also thinking about how we can uh, physically and cognitively improve ourselves in the future. Uh, you know, our soldiers in the future, you know, we, we say the battlefield is going to be a faster battlefield. It's going to be more lethal. There's going to be more physical uh, requirements for soldiers on the battlefield. So, uh, you know, exoskeletons are not science fiction. Exoskeletons right now are going to be delivered in the very near future. And the first way they're going to be delivered is they're going to improve mobility of our aging population so that your grandmother doesn't fall and break her hip, that so that she can move around and maybe get more time to live at her house instead of a nursing home. This is where first these this technology will show up. I'm just thinking of my my mom wearing an exoskeleton. It's it's hard to keep a smile off my face. But sorry, go. Ahead. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if she can live in her home longer yeah. and she can have a high quality of life and she can uh, go out and shop and do this because she, uh, we're talking a light. We're not talking right. about uh, we're not talking about the real you know Marvel characters right, yeah, here. Right. We're talking light uh, a light uh, skeleton she can put on, which allows her to safely move or him to safely move around. And uh, that's not science fiction. That's that's going to be that's going to be there. Uh, wearables. We had a great scientist um, who's the lead uh, for genomics on Stanford, and uh, he talked. He the, he was wearing seven different wearables. He's tracking everything about you can all the all the allergens he's taking in, his heart rate, his uh, all kinds of aspects, and he's tracking it as he's trying to determine you know his quality of life. But wearables, we're going to know all type of diagnostics on. Soldiers. So, if a soldier is wounded on the battlefield, uh, can we determine 
what the threat to that soldier is? Is there a way to do diagnostics and forward care that actually uh, extends the golden hour right. so that we can soldiers can uh, can have better care? That's Basically, automating triage before you absolutely. Yeah. But on the flip side, the embeddables, right? There, you know, none of us here. You and I, Vince, we're, we're not we're, we don't have an embeddable, but there there's a movement in America called transhumanism, and there are people that are embedding things under their skin, uh, and you know what we've said, and I, I think we straight straight up in the blog post is that I expect in the next decade that a soldier's going to come into a recruiting station, and they would have embedded. Uh, some technology. I'm not talking about putting something deep into their brain. I'm talking about some technology which does some basic diagnostics, but potentially reports on uh, all that diagnostic somewhere. And immediately, you know, we just saw the thing in the news about people wearing uh, devices and you're able to track them. Right. And, um, well, what if, what if uh, something is embedded that's doing a very similar thing to what somebody's wearing? Do, do we have to have that individual take it out before they can serve in the army? Mm-hmm. You know, these are questions we're going to be faced with because people are going to show up to our army uh, with embeddable technologies. I think potentially hackable. I mean, I remember when when Dick Cheney, when he was vice president, and he had a pacemaker that had it was networked so that his doctor could keep track. And he's like, you got to turn that off. I mean, what if someone hacks into my pacemaker and is able to assassinate the vice president via cyber, uh, which everyone kind of chuckled at but you know because that was years ago but today it would be like yeah i don't want this thing networked if it's keeping control of my heartbeat i'm moving forward one thing i found really interesting i i would again i mentioned i was a tanker and, and there, there's a, a a slight prejudice against the intelligence level of those in the in the armor community they, they call this dats have you ever heard of that phrase before d-a-t dumbass tankers is what it stood for um but the idea of cognitive enhancement because you're not going to be able to be a dummy in a future army you're going to actually have to under, be able to process information at a rapid rate. I don't care if you're a private on the battlefield all the way up. And talk about science fiction that doesn't seem like it's that far away is the ability to either take supplements or to do like physical changes or implants in the brain that make us smarter and think faster and less tired and less, you know, marathon runners who need less oxygen in their blood or, or soldiers that don't get as tired or don't need to sleep or don't need to eat as much. I mean, that. That might be much closer than we think. Well, there's no doubt that there are pharmaceuticals that help people uh, improve their thinking. There's obviously uh, Ritalin, which is the, which yeah. is used for uh, people who are diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, but and then our, some of our CEOs in America are taking uh, different uh, drugs to help them improve their ability to, to focus. And uh, so th- this is, and we're going to see these drugs develop because we're an aging population. And first, they're going to be developed because we won't. Your mother, Vince, who won't wear an exoskeleton, we would we want our aging population to be able to maintain their cognitive fitness as long as possible because it gets to long-term care. Right. Well, so, then there's already science fiction out there about anti-Alzheimer's disease drugs and kind right. of anti-Parkinson's drugs that deal with you at kind of a neuroscience level right. that give super you know intelligence. And stuff. But beyond pharmaceuticals, though, you know, one thing we've talked about, and we had uh, uh, Julianne Galena who – I think she's still with them. She was with IBM Watson working there, working with uh, DOD on some aspects. And Julianne talked to us at our Georgia Tech conference about a little over a year ago about an idea of a patent in a pocket. So I have Alexa at my house. And, uh, you know, if you think about Alexa, she, you know, sometimes she gets confused. I have a strong Southern accent. It could be that. But she uh, she gets confused that I'm telling her. But Alexa is basically just like my cell phone 17 years ago. 
you could make a phone call on it. Maybe you could take pictures, but they were grainy. The, uh, you could text, but it was wonky. Mm. Uh, you definitely not the smartphone I have in my pocket right now. So in 17 years, uh, Alexa, Google Home, these different things, they're going to move forward. And effectively, uh, one of the things we think about is everyone is going to have access to an entourage. You're going to have a digital entourage that's going to help you offload thinking, help you think about tasks. Now, this is uh, very interesting because it's potentially going to change society. Your children will learn to read and do math and write alongside a digital assistant. And so what does that mean? It, that fu- it could fundamentally change the way they learn. Well, so what we tell people oftentimes is the chief of staff of the Army is in our Army today. He or she is a lieutenant in our Army today. Mm. The command sergeant major of our Army is a private today in our Army. The soldier of 2050 will be born in 2032. That soldier very likely will have a digital assistant. It might not be a patent in the pocket, but there'll be a digital assistant. And that soldier will show up in 2050, and they will potentially have learned alongside digital assistance, artificial intelligence enablement, uh, and that will have meaning. It will affect how they learn. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean to the Army if that's how they learned? If, is that a threat? Can it be hacked? Can it be deceived? Do I need to teach them to be able to learn and operate disconnected? What is the psychological impact of disconnecting them? So all of these are going to be questions for the Army of 2050. seems like a long time from now, but the leadership of that Army is in our Army today, and they're learning the same way I learned. They're training very similar to the way I trained. Right. And they're going to lead an Army, which is potentially very different than the Army of today. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the changing character of warfare, that warfare will look, could look fundamentally different uh, in 2050. And it's because of these emerging technologies and just aspects like that. So there are a lot of questions that we're, we're asking about the technical capabilities of the future. And obviously, the obvious question is, can we do this, right? Is this, do we have the ability at one day to do this science or do this technology? But I assume because we're who we are, we're also asking the question, should we be doing this? Kind of the ethical, moral question. Others might not be asking this question, or certainly others aren't, if you think about terrorist organizations or, or some rogue nations. Does that put us at a handicap and are we cognizant of that handicap and trying to working it into our understanding of this future threat? So because it's a very common question, it, almost every one of our conferences, we bring in an ethicist. And uh, you, you, you can go hear a couple of them. The one we just did had uh, Hank Greeley, who works at Stanford, who's an ethicist there. Uh, so we look at it a couple of different ways. Uh, who who knows what the policy of the U.S. will be in 2050? Today, their policy is with autonomy is that we will not allow autonomous capability to make lethal decisions. That's that's the policy that we operate under uh, now. But what we do know is is that our adversaries potentially will make other decisions. We call that an asymmetry in ethics. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just, to just use one example. Uh, potentially our adversary decides to use autonomous devices and to actually conduct lethal operations. So what does what does that mean? China what, China what, builds Skynet, yeah. basically. What, is what you're, yeah. Well no, I didn't say China, I didn't say Skynet. <laughs> All right, you're not allowed but, to say you're not allowed to say that. So yeah anyway. But, country uh, X. 
Con- yes. Right. Uh, because it might not be a country because these autonomous true, capabilities. Right? Uh, I was just speaking to an international symposium uh, uh, on with some intelligence officers, and I told them, I said, your, your adversary is not going to have to recruit individual suicide bombers. All they need to do is recruit one engineer that can hack autonomous vehicles, which have been armed with explosives, and you have autonomous delivered mm-hmm. um, explosive VBIDs, and which is which is which is a complete change in how the intelligence right. community thinks about interrupting the chain of uh, suicide bombers that are their VBIDs. So it change you know it's going to change these pieces. The, with, the, with the asymmetry of ethics, what we think about is really trying to think through. What, so what advantage does that give an adversary? What does that mean? This isn't unheard of. We as a nation have determined we will not use clustered munitions. Uh, other advers- other other nations have determined that they would use clustered munitions. For example, the Russians. We've ne- you go on Google it. Mm-hmm. They've used the clustered munitions have been used in Syria and the Ukraine. Uh, so by you know so this has been done before. But what you have to determine is what is the real what the asymmetry in ethics. What advantage does it potentially give an adversary? And then how do we how do you mitigate that advantage right. and turn it into an advantage for us? This will be something you know. There is no answer right now to that. We just generally know it's going to happen. And we, so the real piece is: Are we asking the right questions to anticipate and imagine the future that allows us to dream about the advantages we can achieve? Uh, in the way we operate. But sometimes the advantages may not be technical. They may be diplomatic advantages by kind of right. juxtaposing our ethics with theirs or kind of a PR level. You know, and that's where kind of the broader question I asked about working across the board becomes, I think, so important um, because it's what makes us different in certain – you know, we don't use chemical weapons, right? We, in the 1972 ban, we agreed to not use offensive chemical weapons and we've held by that. And then looking now at Russia and London, you can see kind of a diplomatic snafu because of that. Um, so let me ask you this final question because I think this is something that you've alluded to a couple times, but I want to make sure we lay it out for the audience because this sounds like it's something where you're asking for anyone who might have some kind of qualifications or anyone who has ideas to try to get involved. You know, this is essentially a crowdsourced to degree. So how can people – if they're listening, listening to this going, man, that sounds cool. How can they potentially get – rather than reading the blog, which everyone should do, but how can they get involved in, in this program? So uh, so there are several things you can do. Uh, you, know, you can look at our content. We're on uh, at Army Mad Science, our Twitter handle. Uh, if you just Google Army Mad Scientist, you'll see uh, tons of content, ways to plug in. You talked about the blog. We also have an all-partners access network uh, portal, which a lot – which is open to anyone that you can come in and join by joining what it does. It gives you access. You can quickly see the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we crowdsource. That is one of the aspects we do. Uh, We almost always have what I call a call for ideas ongoing. We have one going right now until April 15th. It's focused on the installation of the future as a power projection platform. We're using an analogy of smart cities to think about smart uh, infrastructure and what that might look on future installations. Uh, then we're go- it's not been announced yet, but we're going to do one on learning in 2050. 
Uh, and we're going to talk about all aspects of learning, what kind of technologies could enable it, how do you accelerate learning. There are all aspects to that that we're going to do it. So uh, you can write. In that piece, we allow people to write fiction and nonfiction associated with it. We've offered the opportunity for them to do artwork if they're interested in it, something we learned from August Cole, who does yeah. great work on that. Uh, so you know, we have different ways to contribute there. You can guest blog. Uh, you know, if you, it has to be a certain quality when you write. Uh, but we're, you know, we oftentimes look at something and go back to the individual and say, "This is great. You have a couple ideas here. If you, do, you know, if you focus on this and you know, massage this." Uh, we'll work this with you. Well, the learning one sounds great because you're going from you talk about the in- installation, the future kind of engineering, some of the stuff you've done in the past is science. This sounds like you're bringing an educational theory, and teachers might have some interesting ideas about yes. this, and kind of taking it down to the little arts level. You know, so there is potentially something, no matter what your interests are, that if you're following along with this, you could potentially be a factor and per- you know participate in thinking about the future of right. national defense. Absolutely. This is a way for you to contribute to the United States Army and Department of Defense. You do not have to be a scientist. Uh, you know, we, often we get some great ideas from individuals that are just really interested in the topic and are, you know, and have read on it and researched it. And uh, so, you know, don't don't be deterred from connecting because you're like, well, I'm not a scientist. Uh, really what we're looking for are people who are great thinkers and are willing to uh, contribute ideas. And with the call for ideas, we always select at least one, sometimes two of the best uh, products. We bring them to our conferences, allow them the opportunity to present. Uh, there's, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities. We publish the best work at Small Wars Journal. Like I said, if you go to the Mad Side tab on, at Small Wars Journal, you'll just see lots of content, uh, interesting content from all types of people thinking about different aspects of the future. So connect and contribute. So we've been joined today by Lee Grubbs, the director of the Mad Scientist Initiative of the United States Army Training and Doctrine Command. Lee, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And in case you are listening to this in your car or you're listening to this while you're working out, we're going to post the link to the webpage uh, on the, with the blurb for this. So uh, get a chance to actually link up to it if you're not able to write something down as we're talking. So uh, definitely check that out. So Lee, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for the opportunity.